MusicPreneur.com Great moments are born from great opportunity. A society either rises or falls to the level of its art. If you're good at something, never do it for free. You love music. You've devoted your life to music. Why sell yourself short by sharing your life's passion working for, quote, the man? You musicians, you're too, too musical. <laughs> Netflix is not your friend, people. Get off the couch, take a shower, comb your hair, and get out there. You're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for what the money says. And it says what it says to any player that makes big money, that they're worth it. We could have allowed it to steal our joy, but instead it stealed our inner fortitude. You spend time with your family? Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. The world will point out every reason why I should just quit, but I won't quit for one reason, because I say so. To assist in your journey of making money making music, the musicpreneur.com podcast starts now. Here's your host, James Newcomb. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to musicpreneur.com. I'm James Newcomb, and I'm delighted that you have pressed play on my little show. And this is actually the second, I guess you would call it the second iteration of the musicpreneur.com podcast. And I, the first uh, version of the podcast went from January 2017 until uh, approximately May, June-ish time frame of 2018. So about a, maybe a, around a year and a half. And during that time, I got to talk to a lot of different musicians, a lot of different uh, you know prominent business people, really smart people, smarter than myself, uh, on the topic of entrepreneurship as it pertains to music. And a theme that I heard over and over and over talking to these people in the first um, version of the podcast was community. In one way or another, it, it, it was evident to me that the key to success as a musical entrepreneur or a musicpreneur is to build community. You think about the Musicians who are successful, what, to, what, what makes them successful? Well, they maybe have a Kickstarter campaign or a Patreon account or of, of some kind, and, and they're able to monetize that to some degree. Sometimes, if they're really good at it, they can earn their living with these things. But my attitude is, if you can make even a little bit of money doing what you love to do, well, you've done really well for yourself. So to kick things off with this... Um, New iteration, this new um, this new go at the musicpreneur.com podcast. I wanted to talk about this idea of community. And the first person that came to my mind to talk about community is my guest, who we're about to hear from in just a minute. His name is Jason Heath. He's the host of the Contrabass Conversations podcast. And he was telling me a little bit about his his outreach to the bass community. He views himself as a, or I guess not only he views himself, but I guess the uh, community at large of bassists around the world view Jason as like a community organizer, kind of like a central figure, the person that kind of brings people together, bass players around the world. So what better way to get the interview style or the interview version of the podcast going again with None other than Jason Heath of Contrabass Conversations. Welcome, man. 
It's great to be here, James. And I've had so much fun chatting with you over, over the years. It's been fun to follow along with your journey. And I just love how you document what you do. And I was so bummed when the podcast went on hiatus. I remember listening to you describe what was happening in 2018. I was in Cleveland, Ohio, listening with my AirPods. And I was like, oh, man. And it's so great to, to see you back and what you're doing. So I'm honored to be here. I always love chatting with you. It's, it's a real treat. Well, I think for me personally, uh, I'm not going to get too personal because we're going to talk about what we have in mind, but um, 2018 was a difficult year for me personally, and it, it just, it was the right thing to do to put, to go on hiatus for a short time. And I like toyed with other ideas for podcasts, like some sort of business, or I, I always like to talk about uh, people reinventing themselves or discovering their authentic self. Authentic is so overused. I hate to use it, but it, it, it does apply. But nothing really, nothing really stuck. And I think it was just a couple of, I guess, six or eight weeks ago, I was just in a cab. I was with my wife and I just thought, dude, you, you, have, you still have the musicpreneur.com domain. You still have, you know, this um, history with it. You're a musician it's the perfect it's the perfect thing. So I get, call me the prodigal son, I guess, if you want to. But here we are uh, back on, on the air. So, all right. So, Jason, let's talk about your beginning. I, I, I'm, I can maybe try to recollect, but I know that you started as a uh, orchestra director, like a high school orchestra director in sh- the Chicago area. And you started the podcast, the blog, roughly 2007, 2008, time frame and uh, just just start us out with how you got started with your own little passion project Sure, absolutely. And I have I can relate to going on hiatus because I actually had a five-year hiatus of no blogging, no podcasting. So I have this sort of weird 1.0 and 2.0 uh, phases of activity. I started off, uh, moved to Chicago to go to Northwestern University and spent seven, eight years freelancing there. No podcast, no blog, just in the trenches uh, doing, doing the... Uh, quasi on glamorous work of driving all over the Midwest playing, <laughs> playing gigs. And I decided I was fed up with it and decided to go back to school actually and become a high school orchestra director. And I, and I had, and all of a sudden I'd been practicing for all these auditions, five, six hours a day, you know, banging away, probably not in the best ways at these excerpts. And all of a sudden I found myself with five or six hours that I certainly were, wasn't going to fill with orchestra excerpts. And I've always been interested in technology and tinkering. So I, I started this blog for my students, which morphed into a blog for the base community. And even a little wider than that, back in 2005, 2006, started the podcast January 1st, 2007. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had, I I just knew that I liked podcasts. And when I went to iTunes at the time and typed in bass podcast, uh, one thing did come up, actually, there was a podcast before mine, but he'd done five or six episodes and then pod faded, disappeared. I don't think anybody in 2007 knew the first thing about podcasting even those who were doing it. 
Yeah. Oh, it's it's funny because my equipment was so bad. It sounds like something from the 1920s. There's all this like <laughs> hiss and all this. And I, I just got a credit. I had a couple of fr- and I not that I go back and listen to my early episodes regularly. That would be right. a, an insane and sadistic <laughs> thing to do to myself. But I my first few episodes were just me literally like talking about what was going on on MySpace in 2007 on some base sites. And then I think I reviewed the gear I was talking on, which was terrible. And then I had a couple of people. I finally reached out and did an interview with uh, a friend of mine, which is how we start these things a lot of the time. And then I talked to another couple of friends. And some of these people saw the, the promise of what I was doing. Uh, not necessarily the promise of me, but the promise of, uh, of, and so I had a couple of things happen uh, kind of in my, in my favor, I guess that, that, that sort of helped me build that community. One was my very first podcast guest, one of the lyric opera of Chicago bassist, Andy Anderson. He and I had the idea, Hey, why don't we film some videos for, you know, and there's this new thing, relatively new thing called YouTube. Uh, the videos can't be more than 10 minutes long. This kind of dates when this was, but let's, so I broke up my Canon Pixma two megapixel camera and shot these 10 videos, which I think have somewhere like 400,000 views on YouTube at this point. Um, and then the other thing was a, a friend of mine from the Philadelphia area, uh, realized, Oh, this is pretty cool. And he made all these introductions in the bass world. So within that first year, I'd had just about every major principal bassist on the show and it just kind of spiraled from there. So this is um, like 2007. This is 2007, exactly. 2007, 2008. I was going to school to get my teaching credentials, and I all of a sudden found myself running my own podcast, and I got hired to uh, operate a couple of other podcasts for some local uh, ensembles in the area. And all of a sudden, I, I thought by starting the blog and the podcast that I was going to torpedo my career. I was consciously thinking, I'm not going to play any more gigs. I'm just going to start talking about this stuff. I don't care what people think of me. And ironically, I started to get way better gigs because uh people knew you people knew me yeah and so and i and if i look back and hindsight looks so much neater than the chaos of the present moment covid or no covid um but but it 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 looks kind of logical oh i started doing more things reaching out to people and this and of course that built up my career but i i remember i got hired at depaul university to teach bass i would never have gotten hired at depaul university to teach bass when i was freelancing and taking those auditions. What was podcasting like back in 2007 because it's very very different now than I would that than I would assume that it was back then. Well, it was it was interesting because I'm I'm still on the same hosting provider that I was on back in 2007. I'm going to guess that's Libsyn because they've been around forever. You've got it, James. Yep, that's it. So, <laughs> I am OG Libsyn, you know, yeah, for forever, but um I had already built a little bit of a following with my blog. I'd had a few things blow up. I remember the New York, uh, the New Yorker linked to me for something that I wrote and I, and I got, I think American Federation of Musicians had done an article on me. So I'd gotten some notice in like the wider classical music world, but I was astonished at how hard it was to do a podcast. Like, like I felt like I was starting all over. What made it difficult? I just wasn't used to talking it to people like we're doing right now. But I, I, you know, and I won't hijack the interview, but I love how, I love how you do like that intro you did to me was so for me was so elegant. It just well thought out. And you're just like off the top of your head doing this. I was, I just was not a good speaker. I would send, I, I, I was trying to, 
I, I trying to figure out my, my groove, I would send every guest a list of, I think 32 questions. <laughs> and, and so I'm asking you to do this thing. And most people, had, it was, who are you? What's a podcast? Why should I be on it? And now I've given you this homework assignment. <laughs> and so my first you know, I'll say 80 episodes followed this goofy, dumb format that I had just thought of one day, which had, you know, the people who did the homework and went through, we just had this predictable flow. And so, um, that, that was challenging. Just anything you start off at and you're new with, whether it's podcasting, YouTube, writing, learning a new piece or whatever, you know, it's just the natural learning process. Well, it takes me back to my first days in 2015. I'm going to tell a story right here. And this is kind of, this is kind of embarrassing for me to, to share this, but, um, my first, my very first podcast was called outside the music box and uh, very, I guess kind of a general interest. What wasn't very, didn't do a very good job of niching down. It, it, it didn't make it for a number of reasons, but, but I wanted to focus on like, how music is just a part of our everyday life. It's just all around us. That, I guess that's sort of the flow I was going for. And I, I wanted to do something about Albert Einstein, because I know he's the great physicist, and uh, he, it's pretty well known that he was a, a pretty avid violin player. I wanted to know the the relationship between Einstein and music, right? So I, I contact this fellow in um, England. He's professor of physics at Oxford University, and he's uh, he's written and, and presented on Einstein and music. I think he wrote a book or something. And I thought, this is the kind of person I'd like to talk to after I've interviewed like 30 people and I've got some experience under my belt. <laughs> he turns out to be the very first interview of my entire life. This physics professor at Oxford University. And here I am, a lowly trumpet player in the U.S. Army in Seoul, Korea, talking to this guy. And we get on the call and I'm telling you, Jason, I completely, I froze. I had in mind what I was going to say. I, I think I even wrote it down what I was going to say. And I just completely froze. My brain just froze. And I, I was just I was like, forgive me. This is my very first interview. And uh, my experience as a musician came in, it came into play because I just took a breath. And I said, okay, James, you're just in a performance. It's no, no different from a performance. And eh, for a first interview, I represented myself okay. But um, we all start somewhere. And um, everybody has, nobody is without growing pains or without those painful moments like that. Well, and I like to think that I'm still getting better. You know, I mean, part of why I continue to do the podcast, well, part of it, frankly, is just momentum. I'm so used to doing it. It's it's something that I think of. It's one of those good habits that I I should. The, the podcast is a byproduct. This is the way I'm framing it these days. My podcast is a byproduct of something I'm trying to do to help myself grow. So I would want to be having these conversations anyway. Right. Like chatting with a, 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 a physicist from Oxford. You know, that's amazing. You know, but like, why would the, the, the odds, like I've, I've had a couple conversations today that were, that were amazing and I'm so glad I had them, but I never would have had them if I hadn't had this show to frame the conversation. So, and, and then I think, oh no, this person's coming on and I don't want to be a fool. I better go read some books about this topic or listen to their recordings. And so as a result of doing this, I'm educating myself and I'm educating myself, uh, every week a little bit. So I, that's, that's sort of how I've started to think of the podcast itself. There are 
positives to the Jason Heath career too that have come out of it. But the certainly, but that that if I think of it as as the as uh, activity akin to working out or practicing my instrument or something like that, reading, uh, it, it's something that is helping me grow and and connecting others. That's the beauty of being able to put it out into the world like that. So are you still able to, able to find gigs like in normal times where there's no COVID-19? Are you, are you still active as a performer? Well, I, may, I, I gave myself a rule, which made things really simple. I, I started to get called by the San Francisco Symphony, and my rule is I only play with the San Francisco Symphony. So if I get a call or an email, it's a very easy question. Are you the San Francisco Symphony? Yes or no? Uh, yes. Great. Uh, see you. See you at 10 a.m. or see you next week or whatever. Um, because I was finding myself falling into the and not and this did not to cast any sort of negativity on on any type of work for musicians, but I was finding myself uh, starting to enter the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area freelance world a little bit, which I had done that similar work in Chicago. I started to do it and I said to myself, wait a minute, this is the same, the same game with different characters, you know, and I don't know if I want to be driving to Santa Rosa and then Monterey and eating in my car and catching a few winks in the parking lot. Um, what if I reduce the frequency and, and therefore, uh, up the quality. So it's been a, it's been a great decision. It's not a decision I probably could have made 15, 16 years ago, but it's, and then for me, a lot of playing is kind of a byproduct of the travel I do either through the podcast or through some other associations I have. So I find myself playing a lot of solo stuff again, not during COVID times, but, and, and chamber music and going to festivals. So there's a lot of playing that just kind of happens from my professional activity. And then if I'm free in the San Francisco symphony calls, I'm there. Well, you mentioned a hiatus of five years. When did this happen? Uh, you can tell when I started teaching high school because <sighs> it's the last day <laughs> I put on a podcast. Which is when? Uh, it was uh, tw- 2009, I want to say, and or, two, right, or early 2010. That, that's I'm not being 100% honest. I did kind of make a valiant attempt for the fall semester, and then I realized this is incompatible with my life. I, I, and I'm the sort of person that likes to be all in. I'm all in or I'm out. And so I decided I was just going to go all in on being the best ensemble director I could be in the, and I, and I was, I worked through a series of schools getting what I, I guess you'd consider more prestigious jobs, working on my conducting, working on being a better educator. And I was just like fascinated, maybe the wrong word, but maybe it's the right word with that. So I just, I kind of forgot that I ever had a podcast and, and then my wife matched for her radiology residency out here in San Francisco, which was a total something out of left field. Like we weren't, we were not planning on leaving the Midwest. We weren't planning on leaving Chicago. I was very happy there. She hated the winters, um, but then she came came to this never never land where it doesn't snow and there are sea lions and parrots and 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 I remember walking around here in 2014 and I was thinking to myself, there is no way I can argue that Chicago beats this. You know, there's just no no rational person. It was February 2014, and and it was 65, 70 degrees out, sunny. I remember I got a sun sunburn and I looked up the weather in Chicago and it said thundersnow and I thought all right (laughs) so I yeah which is is what it sounds like a thunderstorm and a snowstorm combined it's like a wonderful midwest occurrence 
So I knew that this move was happening. I also had done about seven years at that point, six, six, seven years as a high school orchestra director. And I thought, do I want, I was turning four, right around turning 40 at the time. And, and so all these things were kind of coming up, a move, turning 40. And I thought, do I want, do I want to do this in California too, or I, because I'm going to lose all my work. DePaul's disappearing. All my gigs are disappearing. All my 23 years of associations I built up, or do I want to do something else? And so I started thinking about it and I opened up Libsyn, which we brought up and I looked at my podcast just out of, I, I, I knew I still had an account cause they kept billing me, <laughs> but, but, um, I hadn't like even paid attention except I would get emails from people occasionally saying, Hey, I love that podcast. Whatever happened to that? Are you and I was doing things in a dumb way where I had screwed up. We don't have to get into the tech of it, but you could only access the most recent 20 episodes. And I'd done like 150 or something like that. So I, th I thought about it for a few days and maybe even a couple of weeks. And I thought, let what if I just pretended that my podcast was my job? What if I just like just said, I'm going to show up 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and I'm going to go to work, which is focusing on this. And I, I had a little transition. My last year of teaching high school, my wife moved out to San Francisco early. So I had all these evenings to myself. So I kind of booted up the podcast and, and I just realized how many kids I was interacting with on a daily basis, which is probably around 200 at the most. And then I looked at how many downloads I was getting every day, which even not having an active podcast was like, way more than that. You know, I hadn't even put anything out in years. So I booted it up and the numbers started to climb. And I, I thought, wow, this is, it, it just struck me that even though it was a little depressing, I wanted the answer, like, what should I do with my life? I wanted the answer to be working in person with all these people. Like I, I, I'm a social person. I like all that interaction, but I, I kind of came to the realization depressing or not that I was having the greatest impact sitting there at my computer, interacting with people in this different way. And so I just decided to go in on that. What was different between uh, 2014 and 2009? Because obviously you wouldn't quit your podcast now to go teach high school orchestra. But right. wh wh what was lacking in your podcast that made you say, well, I can just put this to the, I can shelve this so that I can teach high school orchestra. What was lacking with it? I think a lot of it was me and, and where I was in and how I was thinking of the podcast. And I, I, I started, I, I never quit listening to podcasts. I just quit doing a podcast for a while. And I'd started to discover, uh, many people I'd never even heard of like Tim Ferriss. So I don't even know if the four hour work week had come out when I was doing a podcast. Maybe it was around the same time, but I started to listen to other podcasters and I really just listened to tech podcasts back when I was doing my own. And then I had my base podcast and I started to get intentional about getting better. Like I was trying to be a better conductor when I was, when I was obsessed with that, I just decided let's actually get better. And so I very intentionally like studied, took notes, started preparing a different way. And I think I just got, um, I rebooted with an interview with the principal base of the Chicago symphony and we sat down at his place and I had really thought a lot about this. And I think just the quality of 
me. I, I had great guests. The podcast was relatively popular when I put it out, not because of me. Um, <laughs> it was just because I was having these cool people and I was just able to kind of stay out of the way. Um, so I think that that's a lot to do with it. And then also just thinking like, wow, what? let's try to grow this thing. Let's try various things, Facebook ads. Let's build an app. Let's um, think about it as a business, which I had never really thought of it as. Mm-hmm. I probably should have, but I never, but let's, let's see where we can go with this thing. Let's build an email list, which I didn't get around till, till 2017 or something sad like that. But yeah, so I think it was just my taking a more serious approach uh, to me in my role and to this thing. I, I sort of had a little more respect for what I had done those with those first 150, 160 episodes, I, I was so busy with other things in my life. I would probably barely had my mind on the interview with those. I was going back to school. I was doing this and that. I wasn't really trying to build anything necessary. I mean, I guess I kind of was, but the lens was very blurry. And I think that I think things were a lot more in focus in 2015 when I started to get back into it. It seems like you didn't really have a clear cut mission or a clear cut purpose with it back in the, in the the first go around. No, I had, I had no clarity or purpose. And you know what though? What I did have was I, I tried things and I put things out and some things people responded to and some things they didn't. And I never, I I think that's a, a characteristic I've had probably certainly doing all these online activities. And even back before I was active, you know, posting things mm-hmm. on, on the internet. Um, so I, I think that I was, I was experimental and I was I, I try, try, I, you know, it, I, I had discovered a kind of a playground for ideas mm-hmm. and just trying things. And so, yeah, I did not have much clarity or focus to what I was doing, but I did have energy and I did, uh, uh, delivering wasn't a problem. You mean I, you I, had, you had energy? <laughs> you mean in the, in the past tense? <laughs> it's funny because someone left me a comment recently. It was like, dude, you need to lay off the coffee, which I, I thought was a funny comment because I've been drinking the least amount of coffee in my life uh-huh. since the quarantine. I don't right. know why, but uh-huh. yeah. So yeah. How did, how did you interact with um, listeners of your show back in the day? I had, I had some bad experiences early on with uh, some people. I think the worst I had was somebody leaving something like it was it was I'm not kidding. It was death to Israel and death to Jason Heath, the facilitator of the Zionist plot. Someone left that on my blog. I, I had some really weird hate stuff kind or like, like just very extremely toxic stuff come in both on my YouTube channel and in email form and bulletin boards. So I kind of didn't respond to anybody. Mm. I, 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 I did everything you're not welcome. Like, like this is what we're talking about is everything you're not supposed to do. So I didn't I I I. And when people would email me even to say like during those high school teaching years, Hey, I like this or Hey, why do you do this? I don't think I even responded. So the engagement thing wasn't really Mm -hmm. there so much in what I was doing. Well, let's talk about 2015. You get back on the horse and you're like, okay, I'm going to make a go of this thing. I'm going to make this my business. And we're we're just going to see what happens. First of all, was it called contrabase conversations back in the day? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The t- talk base was taken, so I chose a much, much more <laughs> syllabic <laughs> version of that. <laughs> All right. So tell us about your top priority. What is the number one thing that has to be different from version one and version two? Uh, being present, actually responding to people, mm. starting to 
post about it. I don't even know if I ever posted about it on Facebook or I don't even know if I was on, I don't even remember what the state of Facebook was in that early. I remember lots of MySpace posts mm-hmm. and forum posts. The early t- But actually, uh, email, I mean, simple things, emailing my guest to let them know the episode is out and that I was going to share about it and doing that every single time with the hopes Oh, well, first of all, that's the that's the the civilized thing to do. And hey, maybe I'll get one more listener. If I get what if I get one more or even half of the people I have on the show as a listener over time, that's going to make a difference. How about responding to people that message me on the various platforms? How about building out a little bit more intelligently on these social media platforms? How about maybe thinking about starting an email list? I had all these goofy email captures that I'd had on previous things. So I had a few hundred emails that I just sort of, but I hadn't messaged them in five years. And they were uh, through like some, I don't even remember, feed burner sort of portal or something like that. So um, trying trying to actually... And I wasn't great at it in 2015 or even into 2016, but I got, I got better and I started and, and I had, I started to build a, a team over time and actually uh, I, I like to think that we've gotten a lot better. Uh, and it's, and it's sort of just this thing that has its own momentum at this point. How important was it for you to make Jason Heath the centerpiece of the podcast or the community at large? Was that the focus in the the first iteration? No, and I and I I sort of wish I never put my name on the blog. I've had this Jason Heath's double base blog for for forever. Um, I no, and I think everything I was trying to do was uh, highlight other people. Partially just because, well, first of all, because that's what all the other, if we're thinking specifically about the podcast, because that's what all the other podcasts I listened to did. Mm-hmm. But I, what I realized as I started to get back into it, that I'm, I'm not putting the focus on me, but I am the main character. Right. I am the, I am the, I am the through line with all these conversations. And so people are there in the room with somebody new, but also with me. Right. So I think I wasn't resistant to being the main character. I wasn't shy on the mic or on the camera or in, in written form, but I wasn't trying to direct attention necessarily to me, if that makes sense. Yes. I look at it as like a podcast host is kind of like you own a home and you have guests over all the time. Mm-hmm. You Like twice a week you host a dinner party. And right. at this dinner party you have a guest of honor who's the featured speaker. But you are the you own the property, you own the home, and you facilitate everything. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a uh, it, it's 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 kind of a thankless thing. But it's, I, th- I think it's very important, and I've seen so many podcasters and musicians want to deflect attention off of themselves, and they fail to realize that if you're going to be successful with this thing, you got to, you have to make yourself, your personality, front and center with whatever you're doing, whether it's a music career or a podcast or what have you. Yeah, I don't think that. I think, especially as I've got, I've done more and more of it. I think that just having a regular conversation with me and listening to a podcast episode, it's like pretty close to identical. Um, I might talk a little more in a, just a regular conversation with someone I saw on the street, but I can't probably talk too much on my own podcast anyway. But I think that the, the, there's a very 
close. The, the, the two things are very close in my mind. I'm just trying to have a conversation like I would, yeah. but I have done more research than I probably typically would have. So I, but I, I, I don't look at anything when I talk to people, I, I, I do research. I take notes. I have a, a way, I have a preparation method that I actually enjoy. I, cause I feel like it helps me grow, but I learned, I think I picked this up from Tim Ferriss or possibly some broadcaster. I was listening to advice from just, just like be in the moment, just be in the moment, take all that, do the more prep, the better. You can't do too much prep in my mind. If I could read everything they've ever done, listen to everything they've ever done. Um, great. But then just let it all go and just talk to someone like a human being. Contrabass conversations. When did you first recognize it becoming a community? I think I realized it had the potential to become a community in 2015 when I logged into Libsyn. I think it became a community in Wait, 20- wait, 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 wait. What happened with Libsyn? Oh, when I, lo- I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, elaborate on that. <laughs> when I, when I logged into Libsyn and I realized I'd had, I was continuing to have a bunch of downloads. Okay. I realized that there was, there was, there were people interested in, in this archive. Um, I think when it really started to become a community was when I started to get out there in person and mm-hmm. document those experiences, which mm-hmm. was 2016. So I had okay. this very clear, uh, two forks in the road moment that, that hopefully folks can appreciate. I, I had, was teaching through the, through the spring of 2016. So I still had a salary, but I knew I was about to have no money Mm -hmm. and I had no advertisers for my podcast and we didn't, we weren't making enough to pay rent in San Francisco, uh, on my wife's salary. So I knew I better figure out something and this would not probably immediately pay off, but I think this is the direction I want to go. So I had this moment in September. So I moved to San Francisco and I'm watching the bank account go down. Uh, I know I have some runway, but I know that, the, that Jason better figure out something pretty quick. And there was a bass festival in mid-October in Prague. And I thought, I don't know if I should be spending the money on a plane ticket, an Airbnb to Prague right at this moment. But I interviewed the person who was running the festival and they said, hey, we'll comp you and we'd love to have you come and cover it. And I thought, okay, here's a fork in the road. I was starting to get a few students. I was starting to, I was playing for everybody in the Bay Area. Some gig opportunities were coming in. And so I thought, all right, do I just go to Prague? and bring my microphones and bring some business cards or do I hang out and teach my students and talk about base community? Uh, but not, and I went to Prague and I saw in my downloads the next, the coming weeks and months, a jump okay. because I had actually been there talking to people, interacting with people. All of a sudden I got a, a great, a bunch of great leads for guests. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that jump every time I started to actually go to things and go to base events. So I think the way that the community was, was built was by actually that, that physical presence for me. That's, that's really cool. What do you think is the glue that holds the community together? Probably for, for what I do specifically, I have a very convenient, I guess I'll use the word frame. You know, my niche is I, I, I've carved up this niche that is purportedly base related, right? My show is called Contrabass Conversations. I very rarely talk about the base or the mechanics. It's not a gear show. I'm talking about life with people, but I have a, a defined audience 
of base play, right? We're talking about things that have universal applicability, but I'm just talking to base players largely, not always, about that. So I have, there's, there's, there's a convenient, we, hey, I also play the base, um, but I'm also a human and living life, and we're talking about these things. So I think part of it is probably just my natural fascination with people's stories and kind of the, those broader life lessons that we can learn, whether someone's a, a jazz player or they started started something new. Um, part of it, part of the community also comes, I think, from the natural uh, tendencies of bass players, and I'm generalizing here. Yes, but bass is a supportive instrument. No one goes to take. No, no one goes into bass because they want to be a star. I remember, and, and this is not a diss on any instrument, but I remember talking to my former teacher in the Chicago Symphony about proctoring auditions. And he was like, I was saying, what's the most horrible audition to proctor? And I was thinking he was going to say percussion. He was like, no, principal trumpet. <laughs> and, and, uh, and just like the, the, you know, just the, the type of people that are attracted to certain instruments. And that's not a rip on, I have lots of great friends, including you that are a trumpet player, but like bass players, they tend to be a kind of a collaborative and also mm -hmm. fairly experimental crew. Most of them can't, you know, you don't generally start your child out on bass. You start them on piano or violin or something else and they fall into bass. A lot of people play electric bass. You're playing in all sorts of different styles and genres. So I think that though we're all united by this thing, there's, there's a real breadth to that instrument. And you're just one, I like to say you're just one step away from looking ridiculous as a bass player, no matter what you do. So there's a little bit there. The, the, nobody's that big in the bass community. Even like I named the biggest names in the bass community. And I would be confident that 99% of the world would have no idea who I'm talking about. So, right. But we're big enough that we have these heroes. And so I think, I think part of why what I do has been successful is because of the nature of bass players and the nature of, of just the community itself and how approachable and accessible the quote unquote big names are. Every niche has its rock stars. Yes. You, yeah. You good, can, good. you can have a little, um, knitting club or rock collecting club and every single one of these communities yodeling. Yes. I showed you that crazy, uh, YouTube. <laughs> yeah. The guy is just insane. With yodeling, it's probably the best singing I've ever heard in my life. Right, yodeling of all things, and 16 million views. I think this video you shared had. You know, oh, so. didn't have that. <laughs> well, anyway, this guy—he's a German fellow. He's probably like this little community of yodeling mm -hmm. has this this guy who's a rock star, and everybody in the yodeling community or the fishing pole community—they they have these. The, everybody, every community has their the big names. It's interesting how you talk about trumpet players versus bass players. It's 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 interesting how the role of the instrument within the ensemble uh, kind of shapes or defines one's personality. The trumpet is historically rather dominant in either a band or an orchestra, and uh, they they tend to be a little more brash, a little more braggadocious. I think I think it's by necessity. It's it's, it's really out of survival. Yeah, and again, I some of I some of my best friends are trumpet players, and mm -hmm. I, I I'm thinking so of so many people that are massive exceptions to that rule. My friend Squat, Scott Quackenbush, who's principal trumpet in Omaha, some of the folks here in San Francisco. I mean, uh, uh, Billy Hunter and the Met. I mean, there's so many people that are not like that at all. But but there are tendencies, right? And then there are tendencies. A lot of, there yes. are. Yeah. So it's just interesting. And, and I think there are in the bass community and this theory might be false, but I, it's, it's my theory is that I think that that 
tends to be why we get really good attendance at our base conventions. I think there's probably a similarity to tuba. I think tuba and base have a lot of similarities just in terms of those communities from, from what I've seen. Breeds loyalty when yeah. you have that type of role. Well, I hate to put you on the spot here, but I want to get your thoughts on like your standing within your niche, the mm-hmm. contrabass community. How do people view you? Like you said, you view, you described yourself as a community organizer, but I'm curious as to how well-known you are, like maybe outside of the United States. Are you like on the Mount Rushmore of the contrabass community? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a lot better known than I realized uh, until I started like getting out. Okay. Uh, I remember the first, the first time I went, this is going back a ways, when I went to my first uh base convention, the International Society of Bases. This was 2009. And I, the only time I've ever compared myself to Tom Cruise is like 2009 base convention. I was like, I can imagine what somebody like Tom Cruise feel, feel felt like at that moment, because people were like, Hey, that's Jason. Hey, that's Jason. <laughs> I, and I didn't realize that I had become that spottable. Um, but yeah, it, I am, I am fairly well known. And I, I, you know, I, I try not to think about things like this because I, I, I like to think about like getting better at stuff and not like, you know, looking at how many likes or follows or whatever has happened. Mm-hmm. But I, but I have, I've become a lot better. And I guess it makes sense in a way because I thought like, well, why wouldn't people know all these great jazz players that are doing these things or symphony players, but there's, there's just so much to pay attention to. So I think sometimes when you're running uh, uh, your own news channel, mm-hmm. you know, Dan, Dan Rather's famous for being Dan Rather, or who, you know, name, name your broadcaster. Again, that kind of main character thing is the reason why I think rather than, I, I mean, I'm a fine bass player, uh, but I've never really tried to promote my bass playing. I'm a fine bass teacher, but I never have tried to promote my own bass teaching. Um, I've just like, been on this, been on this journey of profiling people basically as a news, news channel in many ways. And you're not necessarily trying to promote yourself per se. That's not like you're not being, Hey, look me, I'm Jason Heath and I'm the, I'm the man. I've got all these guests, but as a result of you being a central figure for lack of a better term in the, in your little niche, you have become rather prominent. Right. And a lot of, a lot of opportunity income, if we, we don't have to talk about income generation at all, but a lot of things that do generate income have come as a result of that. Yes. Um, and I don't know that I'm approaching it the right way. I think that there's also an equally valid approach to like my, my, my friend, Andrew hits who runs the entrepreneurial position. He very clearly states he, this is, he now says in his new intro, this is a coaching service, a newsletter and a podcast and a YouTube channel or something like that. And he uses that much more clearly than me to drive revenue and, and, and move things forward. Um, now that's not to say when I, I have a couple of online courses coming out, I will hundred percent use my podcast channel to promote my online courses that that would be madness to do otherwise. But a, a lot of interesting things have come as a result of what I'm doing. And I'll tell you back in 2016, going into 2017, I thought that I was going to need to more directly monetize the podcast. I was really looking for advertisers and I did get advertisers and have had many advertisers over the years. I was starting to write books. I wrote a grand total of one book, which I, what 
did generate some some okay income, but it was so much stinking work. I was like, never again. <laughs> I go that way. There are there are so many different ways to be able to sustain yourself as a as a creative doing what what we both do. And there's no right or wrong way. I've kind of gone more of the consulting route and just sort of evaluating the opportunities that have come my way and saying yes or no to various things. And some of them have worked out wonderfully, and some of them have crashed and burned, and that's all good. But um, um, I think I, I think my podcast suffered a little bit when I started trying to monetize it a little too hard. I was really trying to, and so for that reason, just with what I've done, I've resisted growing a Patreon following. I've resisted doing too much. If advertising, if it's this, I don't think of this as a particularly fruitful season for advertising. So I just made the when COVID hit, I, I just told all my advertisers, "Hey, folks, we'll, we'll chat. We'll chat in a year." Yeah. <laughs> right. Or just, right. I'll just let it let it rip solo. But so. Anyway, that's that's sort of how I think about how I because we all have to eat and have have shelter. Let me interrupt. Uh, describe trying to monetize too hard. What did that look like? Well, I, I had a, a book coming out and I decided to put together also an online course about how to build your own version of what I had built, which did not do well, I think three people bought it when I put it out. Did not well to the point where I pulled it down and put it up for free on Gumroad. And I don't even remember where it is. And it's way out of date at this point. But I was really thinking that I needed to get to a certain dollar amount with my podcast. And so I was getting really stressed out looking at my numbers. And if the numbers stopped growing for a little while, I, 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 would, you know, I would be thinking about it. And I think that that was coming through. I think I was, I was trying a bunch of things, not because they sounded interesting to me, but because I thought that they would generate. So I thought, oh, I need to move on to YouTube and do do more like news shows on YouTube. And I, I poured probably 200 hours into like doing these news shows and I was reaching out to advertisers and nobody wanted to advertise. Um, and at the same time, though, I started to work with a couple different companies I just needed to give it some time. And again, this is my own personal journey, totally different for everybody. But what I needed, and I'm sort of glad I realized that by the time 2017, I got by June 2017, I think I had decided to just let the podcast be the podcast because I had gotten connected with a few companies. I had gone to the NAM show and some opportunities had worked out there. And I realized, oh, I am developing a because of my podcast career. I have all these things, and the podcast is why, but it's not the it's it there there's the Jason Heath career, which is like running parallel to the podcast. Mm-hmm. And they both you know, I certainly benefit from the podcast, but I think by not worrying, oh, I, I was also trying, I think a little too hard to get the biggest names in the base world on the podcast and reach out to them again. I just thought, yeah, ooh, if I, if I right. just do this, yeah, I'm going to break through to that point where I, I can pay enough money that my wife won't be angry at me for, you know, not going and doing something. It seems to me like you kind of put yourself in a position where you were a little bit needy. Yes, and I, th- I think it was coming through. Yes, you were trying too hard, and it was maybe apparent to people that money is my objective here, not necessarily the quality or really focusing on that um, building the community. Maybe turn people off a little bit. I'm not sure even how many people would have consciously interpreted that. Right, uh, but, but, they, but they sense it. Yeah, yeah, and it was definitely um, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and I, it's, it's a tough, it's an easy thing to say like, Hey, <laughs> just do what you love and the money will follow. 
I do think that is true for many true mm. for some. That's it, it, definitely the, that the, the, the loop on that might be a little loose. You know, that's not, it's not necessarily going to go that way, you know, right, right at first. But I just feel for me that, that if I just wake up and try to do things that I think are of value and, and be a professional, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we've been talking about, be responsible, respond to emails. I mean, I'm in this weird and, uh, and dear Abby kind of role in the base world. I open up my email and it is the most, uh, delightful and also strange conglomerations of people, mm. c- uh, people from all walks of life. I picked up, I'm 73 years old and I just picked up the base and I live in Wales and I, here are my 19 favorite things about the base. And here are all these YouTube videos. I, you know, I get these like 15 paragraph emails. So I spend a good chunk of my time, not most of my time, but I spend a pretty reasonable chunk of my time answering people who are reaching out to me now. So, which is the opposite of what I was doing back in 2007. So Mm -hmm. I, I think that I'm not answering them because I'm trying to convert them into a customer or anything. I genuinely find this interesting. It's like, what on earth is happening that I am in this position in the world where I am getting these emails, you know, how interesting is that? And, and so probably by actually responding like a real person and going through and watching these YouTube videos, I was actually describing to my wife last night over dinner. I don't know why this came up, but like just the bizarreness that is many of my days, which is like (laughs) watching a yodeling video from James and then, and then, and then, uh, you know, talking to someone in Italy about, about some, you know, something random and then going through all these things and then trying to research this person who somebody thinks is interesting, but I can't find anything out about him. Um, it, it is really that community thing I think has, has been what, not that I was trying to build that way, but I think that that just answering people one by one, like a real person as a real person trying to actually be helpful for free. Give, give, give everything I possibly can. I think that that's had a big impact. Sounds like an improvisation. A very, very long improvisation. And <laughs> something that yep. that stuck out to me is like the podcast itself, it didn't, it, it, it's probably not enough to pay your bills. I don't, I don't, I'm not asking for your, for your numbers or anything, but in doing the podcast, you have built your own career where right? Jason Heath, the consultant, Jason Heath, right. the speaker, whatever. They're, right. Like you said, it's parallel. And Jason, I don't know how many times people have asked me, James, how do you make money with a podcast? Well, wh- what's the right answer to that? Because a lot of businesses will just have a podcast and they have no intention of getting any advertising revenue. Right. Uh, people think, well, you have to have sponsors for your pod. No, you don't. You just need, you need to have a mission and you need to have a message that people want to hear and are willing to pay you with their time to listen to it. And, uh, but, but like a podcast is just part of their marketing budget and they don't have any intention of making any money with it, but they will use it to get a new client or add value to their existing clients. Exactly. And, and it, it's a fascinating medium. I, 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 we could talk for 19 hours about podcasting and the merits of that medium, but just like a couple things that I think about all the time with podcasting, it's a medium that sort of encourages deeper conversation or at least the way I do it. And I know the way that you do it and have done it. So the, that, that now that's a very different thing from our Instagram world. It's a very difficult, a big disadvantage of podcasting is it, it's a big ask. Hey, go listen to my hour long audio only show and subscribe in this thing that may or may not be native on your phone. But what it does is it, people who become fans become true fans in my experience. And I just look to myself, 
I listen to the Trader Joe's podcast every single episode. I love Trader Joe's. I am such a fan and I love them even more, probably irrationally. And I like them even more because of this podcast and like going in and, ch and checking it out. It's a very repurposable medium too. Mm -hmm. You could, we could take this and turn it into a blog post. We could yeah. take this video and chop it up and, and put it on YouTube. So it's, it's just, it has a lower touch point than something like video. It's an easier thing to produce. Mm -hmm. It's something that I feel makes me better and probably makes anybody who does it better if they take it seriously at public speaking, at doing research, all these skills that will transfer over to any other domain in life. Because if you can get good at preparing and speaking clearly, that will help in anything you want to do. And if, if you do, it's a long, slow, it's, it, I would not recommend it as something that you plan on directly monetizing immediately. But there are so many benefits to it that, and you can, I mean, I have, what I decided back in 2017, again, when I started to get some, some, because of my podcast work enough, I decided that every, any money that comes into the podcast will go toward the podcast. And what that means is I, 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 I have some, several people that help me with the podcast, some paid, some volunteer. Um, so that goes to them. That goes to occasional new gear. I don't really buy that much gear, but what it does do is at least once a year until this COVID time, I would take a big trip that I would just do for the podcast and I would fund it from the podcast revenue. And I went to New York city for a week and just interview people. I went to Australia in the fall of 2019 and so that's sort of how I've thought of the podcast and revenue that that's advertising revenue basically for the podcast. So, um, I think of the podcast as something that breaks even it's certainly losing money these months, but that's okay because I'm, I'm doing fine. And it's all, it's, it's all, if I take a law, I've been doing this for 13 years. I, I, it's okay to the long-term prospect of the podcast is nothing but nothing but positive. It'll all even out. We hope. Yes, exactly. We hope. Exactly. Musicpreneur.com. Now that we're, we just have a couple of minutes left, but we've mentioned, of course, COVID-19. The quarantining is still in full force in, in varying uh, aspects, depending on where you live in the United States. It sounds like it's much more draconian there in San Francisco than it is here in Virginia Beach. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious, what is the vibe in, in your community, the base, contrabass community? What are people doing? How are they handling this sudden change? How are, how are people getting by? There are, of course, many silver linings to being thrown into a period of, of radical change. Certainly, people are freaking out. Uh, now they've been, it's been so many months that people are, you know, that, that, that sort of, uh, all the benefits that all of a sudden come with, along with possibly drawbacks of spending more time with your family, of taking a break from the road. I've, I've chatted with several musicians that, you know, were set to play the Coachella festival and do that sort of thing. Some bass players I've had on the podcast. And now they've transitioned into doing more studio work, working with stems, people, people with a lot of, People with a lot of revenue sources, irons in the fire, are, of course, doing much better than people that hung their hat on that orchestra job or that academia job. Because um, it's scary for it's scary for everybody. I've I, I've got a lot of friends in academia, and I feel for them because um, it could be a bumpy road for for that. You know, things have been kind of wrong in my opinion in academia and and what students pay for these degree you know the, I, we don't we could 
talked for a long time about that too, but I think that this might be a, a day of reckoning for, for that. So it's definitely scary. I I've seen a lot of people trying a lot of new things that people are going to come out with a whole lot of skills that they had no plans on building, but they're gonna. Um, so I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of innovation, particularly in how people are starting to teach. I think that's an, just an area in general that could be rethought in so many ways and now is being rethought. Uh, people who realize, oh, none of my students have microphones and we're trying to do a bass lesson and the low string on a bass is a, a thing of horror through an iPhone speaker. It's like, you can't even tell that a pitch is occurring. So how, how can we, do we have to do synchronous one-on-one -on -one teaching? Hey, how about we send each other videos and we, we get a comment stream going in a document and then we meet like a consulting session to talk about, or we do a group group session where we watch something. So I think that there is a lot of innovation on that front that's happening. I just feel so, uh, my heart goes out to so many of my friends and colleagues that are were so mired in the performance world that, that they're, they were just all in and that, because that is going to be a long and bumpy road. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's tough. It, 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 people keeping their chins up, people being hopeful, trying to support each other. Um, one, one thing that I feel really fortunate to have been a part of, uh, Barry Green, the author of the inner game of music, one of my great friends, I just love the guy to death. He came to me with an idea in March and he said, all right, let's put on a giant base conference and just we're, we're going to do it and we're just going to get everybody. And we did it. And we raised over, I think over $30,000. I hope I'm getting that amount right for the international society of basis to go for education and, and just had a lineup of, again, the biggest names in the base community that nobody else is going to know of, <laughs> except maybe, maybe a couple of the top people, Christian McBride and, and a few other people. And it was just so cool to see the community come together like that. Uh, we, we got a wonderful, uh, person named Elisa Jansen Jones to manage it for us, who she's gone on to get hired by Con Selmer and run their online education in the interim. We just, Barry and I both knew her and we had a zoom call that led to her agreeing to take on this crazy project. And it was so cool to go through that and, and see all of these people that I would normally be seeing in person, see them presenting and performing. And you know what? It felt like a convention. That was the big question in my mind. Like, is this wacky online conference thing going to just be a, a drag and depressing? It felt way closer to a convention than I was expecting. So people are trying new things. It's a, it's a long, tough road, but the, the base community is a supportive community. And, and so it's been, it's been heartening to see how people have uh, tried to adapt. You know, times like this, uh, just extreme changes like that, it makes it puts you kind of in a panic mode, which is yeah. can be a good thing because it it just forces you to be creative. When we get to the other side of this, I think a lot of people will have reevaluated their priorities. They'll know what's really important in their life. Having some savings set aside, having some skills that you can market in addition to playing exclusively. It's such a remarkable period of time. I think in the whole of the human race, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. The entire world shuts down simultaneously. It's, it's a good reminder of, you know, I, I've been reading more stoic philosophy since this has all come into place. And, and, you know, I've had my many, many days of frustration and annoyance. And I'm like, you know, getting a little tired of living in this goofy town and with all the, the, the craziness surrounding me, it'd be the same in so many other parts of the world, but it's like, well, what can I control? Right. Mm. I can, I can wake up 
and I can sit down and I can work on something like a professional yeah. and I can, I can take, I can go for a run, even if I have to wear a mask, like we have to do here in California, you know, currently I can make food for my, for my, my wife. I can try to live the, the best life I can and be as helpful to the, to, to others as possible. So. Hey, there we go. <laughs> I'm putting on my face mask to close nice. out this interview. <laughs> Beautiful. Mine is right over there as I go pick up my packages. But James, I, I, lo- I love what you do. Everything you do I find interesting. And the ter- twists and turns that you've taken with Musicpreneur and other things, I, just, I like the way you communicate. I like the way you write. I love your, your story about your, that first podcast. <laughs> I think you've been great at what you do ever since I started listening to you. So, And I, I'm, I'm honored that you would... Pull, I, pull me in. I'm gaining any, any time. Well, and the honor is mine. I mean, it was. Uh, it's just the perfect way to uh, get back on the horse as far as interviews. And um, of course, my wife Sana and I, we, we've we've re- released a few episodes together, uh, and we we will in the future. Jason, I have to ask. You are one of the first people who have toyed around with the Musicpreneur app. What are your thoughts on it? I like it. It's good. I've got it right here. Um, I, what, one question uh-huh. is, are you, um, so right now it's within, it's like within this learnistic environment, right? Yes. So is that, is that your plan long-term going forward or are you planning on branching that out to be a standalone, like, like on my phone, it doesn't say musicpreneur, it says learnistic. Right. Yeah. It says learnistic is the name of the app that you see on your mm-hmm. phone. But once you go in, then all you see is musicpreneur, right? So Learnistic is a company that it's, I, I can't remember what they call it, but it's several people, or probably several hundred people at this point, are Learnistic customers. And mm-hmm. that is like the host of their personal app, kind of like you have a Facebook page. Facebook, uh, it, it's the Facebook platform, but your your content that, that you put on there is your own. You can have your own page, you can have your own group, whatever. Learnistic is similar. And it's really the way to go for me right now because of the cost. Uh, to have a, a app that has all the bells and whistles that this has would probably be probably $30,000 to get started. With all the design and all of the software, I mean, I'm a, I'm a novice when it comes to tech stuff, but there is so much that goes into an app. And this one... Aside from having the Learnistic uh, logo on on the phone, well, you have to deal with that, and you just explain that to to your to your people, and they get it, just like you get it. But it, the the price is very very manageable in comparison to maintaining and building a, a an app of your own, which is extremely expensive. I'd like to do it, but it's 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 not practical right now. Well, I like I like it. I like what's inside it. It looks very flexible. Uh, I, you know, I I've had an app since 2015 through Libsyn, which we brought up, but but um, you know, it's very limited what you can do. And I I went through a hot second where I thought, let me go all in on this Libsyn app and try to see if I can like put more content in there. And it's just so it's it's like wearing the wrong type of shoe to try to do it with that Libsyn app. So that, all they can do is just play the previous episodes, right? Well, you can add uh, blog posts, you can add PDFs, you can add videos, you can add a lot, but um, it, it, it didn't seem to be adding much to the, I didn't get any comments from people saying like, wow, thanks for making the app so much better. So I was like, all right, we'll, do, we'll just do other things. But no, I mean, apps apps are, are incredible. And the co- you're right on the money with that cost. I was doing some legwork for the International Society basis a couple of years ago on apps, and that was right where the cost was coming in. And mm. so we all had to say, no, thank you. But I, I should mention this to 
to them too, because they're they're constantly looking to develop uh, some sort of app presence. My challenge is selling it, selling uh, Learnistic to musicians. It doesn't it doesn't really like if I if I want a musician friend of mine to have an app for their let's say their music or their share their stuff with their people. It's kind of a tough sell to have it on a platform called Learnistic. It's not very showy. Yeah. And platforms in general are just tough to get people on board, right? I mean, like we all at this point know what YouTube is. We all know what Facebook is, what Instagram is. And so it, it's just tough. But I remember for years, people would say, oh, follow me on Instagram. And I said, but I don't use Instagram. I don't, I don't, I don't do that. Right. And, and so I think that's always the big hurdle, but this is, it's very cool. I, 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 impressed with the the way you've been able to lay things out in there i think it's very clean i i like how you can play like your most recent podcast at the august mm-hmm. 8th or something like that is in there so you mm-hmm. can play within the app it keeps going on my phone when i close out of the app yes um the blog post itself is very clean um it looks like you have courses and other material in there mm-hmm. so it's a it's a, a it looks like a great platform so i i'm imp- i'm impressed good well i'm still learning the ropes and um i'm just including this in our chat because I know that people would be interested in the musicpreneur.com app. So you just go to musicpreneur.com slash APP. Anyway, Jason and I have been running our mouths for an hour and 16 minutes. But you're a fun person to talk to. You're a really interesting person. And so I always enjoy and and it did not feel like over an hour or so, which is always a good thing. It can sometimes uh, <laughs> if, you, if you don't get the right match. So. All right. Is it still contrabassconversations.com? That's it. Send right. him there. That'll t- get him everywhere. I mean, if you if you're, you may not be a bass player, but if you wanna, if you're interested in uh, knowing what a high, a well-oiled machine that is a a cornerstone of a of a very specific niche, then just go to contrabassconversations.com. You don't have to be a bass player to appreciate what Jason is doing. So um, until next time, my friend. Can't wait. Let's do this again soon, James. For more podcasts and resources on making money making music, and to download the free musicpreneur.com mobile app, head on over to musicpreneur.com today. Thanks for listening. 